Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book of your Bible. If you start at the beginning and and go past Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. The next book is Joshua. We come now this evening to Joshua chapter 6, a very famous story. Anyone who has ever sat in a Sunday school class, anyone who has ever taken a vacation Bible school lesson, knows the story, and as we'll see in just a moment, knows the song. But today I'd like us to look at what the scriptures teach us from Joshua chapter 6. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. This you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march round the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march round the city, and let the armed men pass before the ark of the Lord. Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men who were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going round it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched round the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time 
when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing Upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that you would teach us from this text, that you would remind us to trust in you, in your methods, in your power. Lord, help us to be patient and to be humble. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, you know the old song. I'll spare you singing it. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. 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 Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You may talk about your men of Gideon. You may talk about your men of Saul. But there's none like good old Joshua at the battle of Jericho that morning. Now, if you remember singing that song as a young person or maybe as you were teaching young people, you remember thinking about the battle of Jericho. And the emphasis there is all on whom? 
It's on Joshua. After all, he's the one that fought the battle of Jericho, isn't he? And so we're surprised then when a story that we think we know so well, when we come to the text and we realize that's completely wrong. That Joshua didn't really do anything at the battle of Jericho. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. Joshua didn't even go around the walls of Jericho. Joshua didn't blow the trumpets. Joshua didn't even shout. The battle of Jericho was not fought by Joshua. It was fought by God. And it's important for us to remember this. Because the Lord God is the one who fights our battles as well. And as we come to situations that seem impossible or improbable, we have to remember to lean upon the Lord and trust in Him. And so as we look at this text this evening, I'd like us to see three things. First, we'll look at the path to Jericho, how the Israelites have come to this point. And then second, we will look at the necessity of trusting the Lord and what that looks like. And then third, we will see the mercy and justice of the Lord in the conquest of Jericho. Let's begin then by looking at the path to Jericho. What was before the Israelites was a daunting task. The Israelites have already been through a great deal up to this point, let's not forget. As a people, they were enslaved in Egypt. And then, when the Lord brought them out of Egypt, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And then their great and beloved leader, Moses, dies. And now they have come to the point where they have just crossed the mighty river Jordan and they are now in enemy territory. After all they have been through, it seems like the hardest is still to come. Now you have to remember, this is not a highly trained, well-equipped army. This is not like the United States Special Forces breaking into a city. This is an entire People, they have no base of support. They have no city they're coming from. As a matter of fact, all of the men who are fighting men have their women and children around them. It's the entire people in the midst of a hostile area. The area around them is entirely hostile. Every city, every people is ready to battle Israel. No one is on their side. Everyone is against them. They have to be careful because there are enemies to their front, to their sides, and to their back. And they cross the River Jordan in a miraculous fashion. But do not lose sight of this. The difficult passing of the Jordan to come into the Promised Land that required God's help means you can't go back over the Jordan. Not unless you're counting on a second miracle of God so that you can run away. So now you're in enemy territory with a gigantic river at your back and right up in front of you is Jericho. If you picture the topography of the promised land, there is a long ridge of mountains in the middle. And the way 
that Palestine is typically to be conquered. It's not only what we will see Joshua doing in chapters to come. It's actually what the British did during World War I, is you come in and you send forces north and you send forces south, and you have to conquer all of these areas along the mountain ridges. But the problem the Israelites are faced with is before they can even get into the area, they have to go past Jericho, a mighty walled city. And they can't just go by Jericho because that would be leaving an enemy army in their rear. And at any time that they're battling, the enemy could come and attack their camp and kill the women and the children. So they're at the gateway of the promised land. But they're faced with a daunting task. But Joshua and Israel are not helpless. The Lord is going before them. You remember at the end of chapter 5, the commander of the army of the Lord comes to Joshua. And Joshua asks him, are you on our side or are you on their side? And you remember the stunning answer, no. I'm on the Lord's side. Joshua understands this and he understands that the Lord is fighting for them. And so they are surrounding the city. No one can get in, no one can get out, our author tells us. Could you imagine the war council that would be going on in Joshua's tent? Someone would say, Joshua, let's just wait them out. Let's starve them out. They'll get hungry eventually and they'll probably surrender. And someone else says, we can't wait this much time. We need to build huge siege engines to throw huge boulders into the city. Maybe we can build a big ramp, that bring a ramp up to the wall and we can conquer the city that way. Someone else might say, no, we need to plan a daring attack. That's the best way to deal with this situation. And so the question is, what will Joshua do? Now, This kind of challenge is not unknown to us. Now, I don't mean that you're going to go home tonight and lay siege to a town. But I do know that for most every one of us, we face difficulties and challenges that seem insurmountable. We're not sure how we will resolve the problems that are before us. Maybe they're financial problems. Maybe they're health problems. Maybe they're relationship problems. The key is that these problems seem bigger than us. And so what we see next is the strange plan that God gives to Israel. Joshua doesn't listen to any of this advice. He doesn't solicit any advice on how they should attack because he already knows what he's supposed to do. God has told him in verse 2 and following. The commander of the Lord has come to him and set him straight. God is in control. And the plan that God has for Joshua and Israel begins with a promise. Now, do you see that? Verse 2 does not begin with what they should do. Verse 2 begins with the end. I've given Jericho into your hand. It's all over, Joshua. I've already won the victory. It is a surety. It's a surety not because of the plan, but because I'm God. Now let me tell you how I intend for you to bring that about. This is 
a very interesting way to see God's promise. Do you notice what tense God uses in verse 2? It's the past tense. I have given Jericho into your hand. Not I am giving. Not I will give. It's a done deal, Joshua. No one can gainsay the Lord. God speaks, and it's done. (coughs) And God's plan for Joshua is, to put it mildly, unique. It is a plan that has absolutely no military value. Get some trumpets, march around the city, and blow them. Now, unless your plan is to tire yourselves out, there's no military value to this plan. But notice what is at the center of this plan. As your eye runs down the text from verse 2 following, notice how many times the ark of God is mentioned. Over and over and over again. Nine times at least, the ark is at the very center of what is going on. What God is saying to Joshua is that he is in their midst. He is at the center of the plan. And when God is in their midst, they cannot be stopped. Who's the focus on here? It's not Joshua. It's not the walls of Jericho. It's God. The people here are actually passive. They're waiting for God to act. God is going to do the conquest of Jericho. Now, God's normal pattern in our lives is to use people and events as instruments. That's what we are used to. As a matter of fact, so often we are so used to it that we begin to ascribe value to the instruments rather than God. And so occasionally God has to gently tap us on the head, wake us up, bring us back to reality. That he is the one at work. That he is the one who is sovereign. And so what he does, because we tend to steal his praise, he puts our contributions aside and makes it very clear that what is going to happen has no human value or merit at all. The Israelites are completely passive. They're just here to see the overwhelming power of God. This brings us to our second point this evening, the necessity of trusting the Lord. Notice that the Lord wants His people to prepare to see His glory. You see, it's not just that Jericho will fall instantly. Joshua tells the people what they must do, and what they must do requires trusting God. And the first thing that they are told to do is to be silent before the Lord. Now, imagine here for a moment that you're an Israelite commander, and you're hearing Joshua speak the words to you of verses 6 and 7. Take the Ark of the Covenant... And let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And go march around the city and pass before the ark of the Lord. Joshua. Seriously? 
I've got a way better plan. Remember the siege engines? Remember the nighttime attack? Why would we possibly do this? What will this do for us? How will it help us, Joshua, to go march around a city? What's that going to do? Why should we listen to this plan? What's the reason for this? Because, you see, the plan itself was designed to build the trust of the people. The only hope they had in the plan was in the one who made the plan, God. There's nothing in the plan itself that would say that it would bring victory. As a matter of fact, humanly speaking, the plan is foolish. But they must trust God. And when they trust God, then they will see God act. Now imagine that you are now in the force that is marching around the city. It's day one. And you march around the city and the priests blow the trumpets and the people on the walls of Jericho are looking down wondering what is going on. What sort of sneak attack is this? There would be, I would think, a very eerie silence over the field of battle because the forces of Jericho wouldn't know what's coming and they'd want to pay close attention and be ready for any kind of attack. But the day goes by and then Israelites go back to the camp. Now it's day two. Same story. Second verse. They start to go around again. They're blowing the horn. Now you can imagine... People of Jericho are not really worried about a sneak attack. They're wondering what these nuts, the Israelites, are doing. And they're probably letting the Israelites know this. Hey, fools, aren't you going to attack us? What are you trying to do? Tread a pathway around the city? Are you hoping to kick up a dust cloud so that maybe our eyes don't work well? What are you doing? And Israel has to be silent in the face of her critics. And then it's day three. Same story, third verse. And now you can imagine the mocking that would come from Jericho would be crude and violent. They're getting more and more self-confident that they'll never be defeated by Israel because if this is the best plan Israel has to march around our walls until they fall asleep, how are they possibly going to beat us? And you can imagine they're hurling all these insults upon the Israelites. And now remember, Israel has to stay silent. Not to throw insults back at them. Not to try and explain away what they're doing. Could you imagine doing that for days three and days four and days five and days six? Maybe some of you can because you've been the subject of taunts and criticisms at work, or at school, or in your neighborhood. People can't believe why you do the things you do. Why do you bother to pray? Why do you bother to give money to a church? Why do you bother to give up a perfectly good Sunday when you could sleep in to go be with Christians? And sometimes we just have to be silent and trust the Lord. That's what the Israelites are doing here. Silence before the Lord is one of the hardest commandments to keep because we want to be active. We want to fix things. We want a measure of control. But it's only when we have a heart that is quieted by a trust of the Lord that we can be so still.
I think in our present condition, this is perfectly applicable to the upcoming election. We all want to say things, fix things, figure out a plan, do what we can do. And I think right now, our best course of action is silence before the Lord. To trust Him. He knows what He's doing. If you're not sure what He's doing, join the club. But I trust Him. Not because I know exactly what He's doing, but because I know Him. That's what the Israelites would do. They'd be silent before the Lord. But they must also be obedient before the Lord. They must obey the Lord. They must follow His instructions. And they must do so even when they cannot clearly see the end. This is the nature of obedience. This is where Adam failed. He could not understand or see the end. And therefore, because he did not have a sufficient reason to obey God, he disobeyed God. But obedience is a part of faith. It's not in opposition to faith. We obey God because we believe God and because we trust God in what He asks. Now, remember, go back to the text. You're not in Sunday school. You're not singing the song. How many days are the Israelites to march around Jericho if you're an Israelite? If you answer seven, you're wrong. Joshua knows they are to march seven times. Where in the text does Joshua tell Israel seven times? He doesn't. They don't even know how many days they have to go around. Now Joshua does. But the Israelites just simply need to obey. They're not saying to themselves, as you might do or I might do at the gym, all right, I've run four laps. I know I've only got three left. Okay, I've run the fifth lap. I know I can make it because I've only got two left. Unless you have one of these sadistic trainers that says to you, you need to lift this weight ten times. And then when you're on nine, he says to you, okay, good, give me ten more. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought I had one. I don't want to do ten more. And then you begin to do ten more, and he says, that's great, give me ten more. You're like, hold on a minute here. I didn't sign up for 30. I thought we had ten. Where's the deal that we had? You see, the Israelites don't have that perspective. They just know that they are to obey the Lord. Can you obey something, someone perhaps, when that person is not trustworthy? When someone who you don't trust comes up and tells you to do something, are you eager to obey that command? Of course not. The only one that you can obey is the one that you trust. And you see, that's why obedience is a part of faith. The Israelites obeyed Joshua's command from the Lord. But Hebrews tells us that that was faith working in them. Hebrews 11.30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Not by work, not by obedience, by faith. It was the faith of the Israelites working out in their obedience. As they obeyed, they were showing that they had faith in God that he would do what he said he would do. And the Lord delights in obedience. Later in Israel's history, he will say so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, after Saul had sought to do things instead of obeying. 
Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. What God wants from you is your obedience. And Jesus is the ultimate example and expression of obedience. He was obedient, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Israel obeyed to the end because they trusted God. And so the Israelites march around the city. And on the seventh day, Joshua tells them that victory is at hand. Can you imagine the build-up to this day? Our author gives us a picture of this in verses 17 through 19. Now, do you notice something unusual happens here? In verse 16... Joshua tells them to shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then he begins to describe what they're to do with Rahab, and he gives them the fine print about the city. Now, could you imagine being with a group of teens? And you tell them, when the time comes and I tell you to shout, shout. And you yell, shout, and everybody's quiet while you give them fine-tuned details. I don't think so. I think as soon as the word shout is out of your mouth, everybody is yelling at the top of their lungs, right? Now, does that mean that this didn't happen? That Joshua didn't give them the details about Rahab? No, I don't think so. I think what the author is doing here is rehearsing for us something that Joshua had told them earlier, that what they were to do when the city was theirs. So why does the author stick the fine print in here in verses 17 through 19? It's because he wants us to experience that build-up, that pause, that waiting for the victory that Israel has been waiting for. And now finally it comes. There's a thunderous shout and the wall comes tumbling down. Now think for a moment about Jericho. Can you imagine the shock in Jericho? They had been mocking God. They had been mocking the Israelites. They were so certain in themselves that they could never be conquered. After all, the Israelites weren't even trying. How could they possibly be defeated? But now, they realized that every single thing that they had trusted in was lost. This is a picture of the world. For you see, the world is quick to mock the Lord. The world is sure that they will be victorious. And yet the day will come when they will be shocked. And everything that they have trusted in is gone. All of Jericho falls before the Lord. 
Now we have to remember the context of the fall of Jericho. This is not the war-hungry Israelites coming in to defeat an innocent people. No, this is the patient judgment and justice of God that has been put off for generations until the iniquity of the people of Jericho was full. They were worthy of judgment for generation upon generation. They were given opportunity after opportunity to repent. And they mocked repentance and the Lord. There is a just judgment that comes upon Jericho. God is the one who has been harmed. God is the one who will be vindicated. We see the justice and the judgment of God. And yet, finally, in the midst of this just judgment, God shows mercy. We come back to Rahab and her family. Among the least in Jericho, she was a prostitute. She had nothing to her name. She was not powerful or wealthy. She was not honored in the city. And she saved because God in his providence set his mercy upon her. Now you say to me, no, pastor, no, no, no. Don't you recall it was what she did? She opened up her house to the spies. That's why she was saved. And I say to you, no, wait a minute. How did the spies come to her home? Why did the spies come to her home? Why was she open to the works of the Lord? You see, God was already at work in her life. He desired to show mercy. And this is the fulfillment of a promise. It is a promise that is grounded in faith. It is a promise that is grounded in her commitment to the Lord. So why then should it surprise us if God works this way? Shouldn't we then be more optimistic about our world and God's grace? Shouldn't we look for more of His mercy in our world? The story of Jericho reminds us that God is sovereign. He may involve His people in His work, but He does not need us. He is wise. And we, would do well to trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Jericho and for the way in which you showed your mighty hand. Lord, there is indeed none like you. We ask that you would bless us this week as we go about our business, that you would put a song in our heart and the love of Jesus in our eyes, that even as we go about our daily lives, others would see Christ in us. We ask also, O Lord, that you would bless this meal that we are about to partake of, that you would cause it to nourish our bodies, that you would give us sweet fellowship in Christ, that we would encourage one another for your glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.